Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Abigail Snyder, and this is the Armchair Travel Show, where you don't have to leave your comfort zone. If your comfort zone is your car, you stay there. If your comfort zone is your dorm room, you stay there. And if your comfort zone is your living room, you stay there. Last time on the Virtual Voyage, we were in Israel, and we finished our tour of Tel Shiloh, the ancient city where the tabernacle had dwelt for 369 years. This week on the Virtual Voyage, I have a very special episode planned for us. We're going to take a tour of Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center. It's just a quick walk from our hostel up Jaffa Street, plus a few turns to Mount Herzl. So let's head on out. As we walk, let me tell you a little bit about Yad Vashem and who we're going to meet there. So after the horrors of the Holocaust, Yad Vashem was built to commemorate the lives lost and also the brave Jews and non-Jews who helped save innocent lives. Yad Vashem seeks to remember those who were horribly murdered by collecting names, pictures, testimonies, and more. We're going to soon be meeting our tour guide and my friend for our visit to Yad Vashem, Rabbi Henoch Teller. Rabbi Teller is an Orthodox Jewish rabbi and historian who has authored nearly 30 books, produced three documentaries, and is the storyteller of all storytellers. I've been privileged to hear him speak on several occasions, and I always leave feeling inspired and in awe. And you're going to get that today, too. He's also the host of the very new podcast, as in just a few days old, Teller from Jerusalem. I'll give you all the information later, and I'll let him talk about it, too, so you can take a listen, because you will for sure want to. It's a podcast devoted to looking at the early struggle to establish the state of Israel, and also there's a special monthly episode concerning character and moral development. Now, this is something we haven't gotten to look a lot at on the virtual voyage, so you may really enjoy checking it out as it will inform our time here in Israel. So we're just arriving at Yad Vashem. If you see the triangular structure sticking up, that's it. So let's go ahead on in and walk through the doors. Come over this way with me. I think I see him, Rabbi Teller. Hello. Hello, Abigail. Oh, I love listening to your show. You are such an animated and matriarchal tour guide. I'm flattered that you're handing over the reins to me. And just tell me what to do and I'll start the group. Sounds good. We're all so excited to, to be here and so good to see you and thank you for joining us. So I was just telling the virtual voyagers a little bit about you, but one thing I didn't mention, uh, how many kids do you have? We have 18. We're blessed with. 18 kids. Wow. What a blessing. That's awesome. Well, we're so excited to be here with you. Since our time is short, why don't we head right on in and I'll just hand over the reins. Okay, like, we like don't just said. one sec. We don't oh. go straight into Yad Vashem. We Alrighty. into the museum. We have to pass through the promenade of the righteous Gentiles. The entranceway into Yad Vashem, you pass by, it's a promenade, it takes a while, to commemorate those non-Jews who risked their lives, actually their lives and those of their families. Any non-Jew who would harbor a Jew risking murdered themselves and their family as well. So this is to commemorate those non-Jews. Now, I always ask, how many non-Jews lived in Europe at the time of the Holocaust, uh, meaning during World War II? I get, I'm afraid, uh, very moronic and basilic and idiotic answers, but hey, this is Hillsdale. You made it in there, so you'll probably give a better answer. So I'm not going to do a Q&A, but the answer is there were about 897. We could just round out to 1 billion non-Jews. And how many of them were Jews? And here again, I get this very 
incredible answers. No, there were not 20% and not 50%, not 5%. They were a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. Interestingly, you know, even our time is so pressed, I'll tell you an interesting anecdote. Even in America, I don't know why people think there are so many Jews and we're such a small percentage. Uh, I was once flying somewhere out west and when the waitress, the waitress, the stewardess served me, served me a kosher meal, the woman next to me said, oh, another kosher meal. So I said, what does that mean, another kosher meal? I said, everyone's getting these kosher meals. I said, I want you to know that if you're getting a kosher meal, that means you keep kosher. That means you're Jewish. That means you're an observant Jew. And the number of observant Jews is a small fraction of the Jews. So I asked her, do you know how many Jews there are in America? And again, she gave me an intelligent woman. She gave me a high, high number. I said, we comprise less than 2% of the American population, to which she said, they must all be in my state. Okay, in any event, the number of Jews is a very small, the number of Jews in Europe were small, and the number of non-Jews were very, very significant, about 1 billion. How many of them actually saved Jewish lives? So uh, it's a fraction of 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 a fraction. I put it into my daughter's sophisticated high school calculator, and it couldn't even come up with a number. It oh, my zero. goodness. Very, very, very small number. Now, who is the most famous of the righteous Gentiles? I'm not really going to answer that question, but I know what you'll think. Most people answer Oscar Schindler because there was a very, uh, very moving movie made about him, Schindler's List. He actually is not the most famous, but in Hollywood, he surely is. And here in this, in this juncture, I want to tell you a rabbinic tradition. The rabbis teach that a person is given three names. The name that your parents give you upon your birth, the name that your friends call you, and then the name that you earn, uh, your reputation. So the fact of the matter is, is that Schindler was a very problematic individual. He was a womanizer, a boozer, a dishonest businessman, a loan shark. There wasn't much he didn't bad that he didn't do. However, at that critical juncture during the Holocaust, he saved nearly 1,200 Jewish lives. And forever after, his name has been synonymous with heroism, bravery, courage, self-sacrifice, synonymous. Like Vaseline means petroleum jelly, and Kleenex means tissues, and Q-tips means cotton swabs. Schindler became synonymous with heroism and self-sacrifice. And here's a take-home message for all of us. If you're on the tour or wherever you're out there in Hillsdale, everyone can change their name. That reputation, that's up to you to change. And that is, in fact, our obligation. Okay, so we begin, we go into the museum. And it's interesting that the Palm of the Righteous Gentile is a parallel path to the path which goes, descends into the museum because it's a, it's a race against time. It's a race between those people. The Bible says, the person's nature is evil from birth. And our job and what our parents teach us, what religion inculcates, is to refine, advance, and make that nature a better nature. But the Nazis, uh, they were not the aberration. They were the default. So that's the race against time. The righteous Gentiles, those who fought their nature, and then we go down to people who did monstrosities that demand that are beyond man's ken. So we enter into the museum, and we're going to have to make this tour a little, little quick because uh, I usually make it two and a quarter hours, and we have a shorter time slot. So I think we have to say, as historians like to say, that World War II, some refer to it as 30-year war. It was really an extension of World War I. The Germans had a loss. How could they explain that the invincible German army which had not lost a battle from the time Bismarck had united the country, how could they have lost World War I? And they were, for lack of a better term, 
poor sport. They couldn't fathom. You all know what a poor sport is. I don't know what Hillsdale's sports teams are, but a poor sport means one who cannot own up to their loss. They'll blame the referee, the umpire, the weather conditions, the other team cheated. And the Germans never even called World War I a loss. They called it Sonnenbruch, which means a collapse. There's an enemy from within which pulled out the carpet and Germany collapsed. The enemy from within they called committed a dolstus, a stab in the back, and that was the Jew. And they referred to the Jews as Basli vermin. Basli vermin are parasites. What do you do with parasites? The word is you, ex- you exterminate. And that's self-preservation. They refer to the Jews as Basli vermin because if you refer to them as people, then what you're about to do is murder. Refer to them as Basli vermin, and what you're doing is self-preservation. So the Germans now, and Goebbels, who was the minister of propaganda, he got an entire population to believe, of course, with the encouragement and the leadership of Hitler, that the Jews were responsible for all of the evils. And uh, how could this work? So what him, him, what Goebbels taught was tell a lie a thousand times and it becomes the truth. He also employed a technique that Hitler had uh, perfected or honed called the great lie or the big lie. What's the great lie? If I tell you something which isn't true, you're not going to believe me. But if I say something which is so preposterous, you think, you can't make that up. It's got to be true. So therefore, the Jews, which comprise less than half a percent of the population, which mathematically and arithmetically could not have all the food, commerce, industry, and competition, tell the lie a thousand times, make it so preposterous, and now everyone's believing this, it'll make them easier to believe and solve their problems, why it is that the German people, which were really suffering after World War I, certainly their ego, they had lost, and they couldn't believe how they could have lost, and there was hunger, and when people are hungry, they do very desperate things, and they felt that they were totally humiliated by having to pay reparation when the German people were very impoverished. You couldn't really tax the people. So what they did was they printed money. And in Yad Vashem, we can see right here in this display, German currency. And what they did is they would just stamp it every other day with another zero. Like you have a dollar bill, it's now dollars, $100, $1,000, $10,000, $100,000, a million, this is going to turn into 10 million, a billion, a trillion. And it has no money. And on the back of the money, it says, we're left with all this garbage and the juice of all the money. And people are believing this uh, because that's so much easier to believe than you've done something wrong. Now, before we get actually to, well, this is just leading up to world, from the time the Nazi party came to power in 19, January 1933, at the very beginning of their agenda was to humiliate, despoil the Jew. And uh, even in, in every sign, in every street, uh, the signs on the road, instead of telling you, you know, the population or speed limit, they tell you how evil the Jew is. Jews get out of here. They don't belong over here. This is not Palestine, as if the Jew could go anywhere. Nobody had opened the doors to the Jews. Okay, so now uh, the, we're about to begin World War I. And we'll soon see that the first order of business for the Nazis was to get rid of the Jews. Uh, people make the following mistake. People believe that Hitler blamed the Jews to gain power. Incorrect. The sad fact is he did not blame the Jews to gain power, but rather he gained power in order to murder the Jews. How else can you explain the fact when he's losing on two fronts and desperately needs reinforcements, materiel? He will not use trains to evacuate because he's using all these trains for the annihilation of taking the Jews to the extermination camps. 
knows he didn't blame the Jews to gain power, he gained power in order to murder the Jews. Okay, so we're beginning with World War I, and remarkably, the Germans established from the beginning over 52,000 facilities. That's a, an astounding statistic, over 52,000 facilities to deal with the Jews. They're at war against the world. War for their life, but we see what their priority is of destruction of the Jew, Iberalis. Destruction of the Jews. Now, let's just begin this before we started in 1933, the Nazi, power, Nazi party comes to power. Then Kristallnacht, and you'll see some displays here. The Kristallnacht was the prelude to the Holocaust. On this night, November 9th, 10th, 1938, every single synagogue in Germany, subsequently in Austria, was put to the torch. Uh, every Jewish home was raided, pillaged, plundered. Jewish Kristallnacht means broken glass. And Jews were forced to run across the broken glass of the shops, barefoot, of course, in the middle of the night. They had to set a torch to their synagogues and dance around them. Uh, 30,000 Jews were arrested, held overnight in unbearably terrible conditions. Uh, in the morning, they were the Orthodox Jews were forced to clean up the floor with their beards from the excrement and the urine. And these 30,000 were then marched off to concentration camps, which had been prepared for them as the people jeered. Then in an act of total cynicism, the, Jew, the Jewish community was fined one billion Reichmarks to pay for the damage as if they were to blame. Uh, okay, so let's step a little further into the museum. And another thing which happened in 1938, I don't know if you folks are familiar, is the story of the SS St. Louis. In May of 1938, a boat with 937 Jewish passengers departs from Germany Two, ostensibly was going to America, but right away as they're leaving, it's changed to Cuba. America was not allowing any Jews to enter its borders. Now, obviously, these are the most, the richest of German Jews who could afford passage. They had already had everything taken from them. They were despoiled, and they had this tax then of one billion Reichmarks placed upon the Jewish community. And they had paid a fortune, fortune, fortune to acquire landing papers in Cuba. And of the 937 Jews, 736 had legitimate visas to go to America, but they would only be valid. Uh, they'd only be valid after three months' time. When the boat docks in Cuba, it is literally tethered to the port. You can look up and see the passengers. The Cubans want a bribe. Now, in Latin America, Central America, Spanish America, bribe is a way of life. I'll bet you that one of the first words you learn in Spanish is el bribo. And if they need a bribe, what should you do? American jury were very slow on the uptake. A bribe? A bribe's against the law. The captain of the ship, Gustav Schroeder, a German, was a benevolent, magnanimous humanitarian. And he figured, okay, well, uh, America's humane country. Surely America will let them in. And furthermore, 736 were American, had American visas. They were not just yet valid. So he sailed the boat up and down the eastern seaboard but America did not get passage. They sent a postcard cutter to intercept. And the boat, which had already come to the West, then had to be returned back to Europe because there wasn't a country on the face of the earth that would give them haven. They went back to where they came from, and many of them perished in the Holocaust. Okay, so let's move along. We're in 1938. We begin with the war. Uh, and right away, once the Germans take over, the first country was Poland. They established ghettos for the Jews. Jews are marked. Uh, once they go to the camps, they'll be branded with numbers, but now they're marked with yellow stars and armbands. Uh, they are confined to a ghetto without sanitation, 
without heat, without food. And conditions are horrific. Uh, the cold, we're talking Poland is a country of extremities. In the summer, it's boiling hot. In the winter, it's freezing cold. Uh, 150,000 in the Warsaw Ghetto, which at its height had 500,000 Jews. 150,000 don't have clothing. The body cannot cope with these temperatures, and they're dropping like flies, certainly the young and the old. And there is not just uh, cold, there is hunger, which crazes the mind. People, there's not even subcutaneous fat, and it's too painful to sit down, to lie down, even to walk. And you are crazed for food all the time. There's a stench. There's decomposing bodies. There's excrement. In the Ludge ghetto, which is a very large city in Poland, only 3% of the toilets worked because they were overtaxed. So the overwhelming majority are outside living in the sewer with the stench and the hunger and the cold and all the disease. Uh, this is the situation in the ghetto. And from the ghettos, the Germans then take them, put them on trains, which will be their final destination. On trains to extermination centers, the most famous of the extermination camps is Auschwitz. There were four extermination camps, but even if it would be a labor camp or a concentration camp or a work camp, it all meant the same thing. It meant the destruction of the Jew. So they board the trains. Now, we'll just go over to this quick display of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, quite a heroic act. As a rule, Jews only rebelled during the Holocaust or armed resistance when it was too late, when they understood that they were doomed. But the Germans always employed deception and misleading them. Even the Warsaw Ghetto, when the Germans knew that Jews were hiding somewhere because the numbers did not add up, they had Jews at rifle point in Treblinka, an extermination camp, sent home postcards. And they would get the postcard, and you get it from your grandmother in her handwriting saying, things are wonderful here, we can't wait to see you. And denial is not just a river in Egypt. Freud writes about this. When things seem so terrible, you can't believe what's going to happen. So the Germans said, we're going to send you to work. You'll finally do something productive. So that's so much easier to believe than they're going to be sent to their destruction. And the German genius was always making the worst worse. They couldn't believe that something as terrible the ghetto could get any, any worse. And so they went, and you can see, as we look at this film over here, their faces going on to the trains and trucks to their death. You don't, you see somewhat of hope on their face because they, they can't imagine anything could be worse than the ghetto. Okay, now the death march is, uh, the, the concentration camps really were, uh, as a rule in Auschwitz, if you would be a political prisoner, a communist, homosexual with luck you could survive for a jew it meant destruction as the commandant of auschwitz said in auschwitz there's only one way out for a jew and that's up the chimney they were they came to overwhelming majority were sent right away to the gas chambers then they were incinerated uh and then when auschwitz was liberated on january 27th uh, uh 1945 the winter of 1944 1945 those that were left went on a death march I'm going to tell you a story, just I'll end with the story because our time is lapsing. A good friend of mine, his father, who just passed away recently, really just a few weeks ago, his father was on a death march. He was a 15-year-old boy. And when he left in the winter, January 1945, the snow was hip deep. It was freezing cold outside. He didn't have shoes. His feet were blistered and cracked. And that's actually what kept him alive because the blood kept circulation going. Otherwise, they would have frozen and come off. And after three days, he could not keep up the pace. The Germans were shooting or sh anyone that was not maintaining the pace. And uh, so a German took the butt of the 
into his side and he said to him, you know, that he must march on. And he just collapsed. And the gentleman sitting ne marching next to him lifted him up and he said, my son, we're only going as far as that steeple. Now, if you've ever been to Poland, Poland is an extremely Catholic country. There are more steeples in Poland than there are golden arches in America. He said, we're going as far as that steeple. Then he marched for the next 600 kilometers, steeple after steeple after steeple. My friend was wet and his father walked him down to the marriage canopy. An image flooded my head of just marching steeple after steeple. He built a beautiful family, having to, something which to march for. And that's actually where my uh, podcast picks up insofar as it talk about the history of the building of the state of Israel, where the Holocaust survivors then came to Israel. Remarkable stories. We just launched it uh, three days ago. And I think the stories which are riveting, and it's also an opportunity. Once a, once a month, we talk about civility and character, which I think we could all lose a little brushing up on. How are we doing now? We have a little more time? Or? We're just down to the end of it, sadly, because we could certainly sit here for another two hours. It's so amazing. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and sharing Yad Vashem with us and sharing these stories and also about your podcast. Um, looking back on history, I think so oftentimes is hard. Maybe you can speak to this as a historian, but it is our duty to understand the past and um, to be informed citizens uh, of the past. And so you've given us a glimpse of, of a glimpse of that today. And I know you keep on going and I've heard you keep on going and I wish we had time <laughs> for that. But um, let me just give one more plug, if I may. Yes. I wrote a book called Heroic Children. And this is a good, I mean, as Michael Medved, the conservative commentator said, if you were to read one book about the Holocaust, this would be it. It's flattering to say that about my own book, but uh, it's a much more riveting way of reading it. We're telling the story of children who survived the Holocaust. And through their stories, we learn all about what occurred in a much more easy, palatable way to understand it. Great. Okay, so that's Heroic Children, the book. And I've read that fantastic book, highly recommend. And then we also have your new podcast, Teller from Jerusalem. And where can people find that? I think if you go to Teller from Jerusalem, you'll find both my book or my website, hanakteller.com. But let's see Teller from Jerusalem. It's easier to pronounce Teller, Teller like a storyteller or like a bank teller, Teller from Jerusalem and uh, .com. There you'll find the podcast. I hope people will listen in. I hope you'll subscribe and recommend to others because we have a message to convey. Great. Okay. And I'll also put some of those links in the description of the show so everyone is clear on where to get it. Rabbi Teller, it's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on the virtual voyage with us today. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to give us a tour. My pleasure. All right. Shalom. Okay. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the virtual voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. While it will be hard to top the moving tour we just had with the fantastic Rabbi Teller, I hope you'll tune back in next time as we continue our time here in Israel. See you next time.